With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. TCL is a proud sponsor of the Score North Studios. TCL, America's fastest growing TV brand. Oh, it's fun. Crazy. It's painful, but it's wonderful. What is the name? It's Roycey Unchained. And it is Roycey Unchained. What's going on, Patrick? How are you? Well, uh, we uh, our, our water heater went has been going to Fluey, so we're getting a new water heater put in here today. Mm-hmm. And and uh, you know it's it's a fairly decent size amount of money and the, the wife decided to raise the idea that if I only was a handyman I could have went to Home Depot or Menards <laughs> bought one brought it in brought it in and installed it it would be the pandemic would be over before I'd figure out how to put one of those things in why would you even bring that up after uh, 40 years. I, I don't get that. Yeah, you know what? You know what? If you marry a sports writer or a broadcaster, <laughs> yes, and then right, at some point right. in time decide, wouldn't it be nice if you fixed the lock on the back door, you married the wrong person. <laughs> That's right. That's right. In fact, the uh, you, you bring up the door, the one that comes into the garage, the handle fell off. And, and I said, it looks like we need a new door. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> Handle fell off, yep. and uh, she ended up like getting these thick pieces of masking tape type stuff and powdered them the side of the door so we could just pull it open. <laughs> uh, but my solution was get a new door because I got no chance to put the handle back on there. No, no chance whatsoever. Yeah. So uh, yeah. Anyway, it was. I, I thought that was rather humorous. If only you could go to Menards and get a water heater and install it. First of all, what am I going to do? Put the top down on the convertible and throw it in the back? What are you we don't exactly have a truck here. I got a truck that wouldn't hold two infants. You know, it's I mean, Jonathan's child couldn't fit in my truck. I got to go get a water heater. You know. Anyway, we need. Was, we uh, need. <laughs> The rookie to do his impersonation of Roycey at Home Depot <laughs> trying to buy a water heater that he's going to then take home and install. Well, whenever I go there, like, to get, if I'm assigned to take, get something at, at Home Depot or Menards, I take the thing we'll replace with me. Whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's like, sometimes it weighs 10 pounds, but I take it with me. So, so, and then I say, give me two of these. <laughs> Whatever the hell they are, give me two of these. <laughs> I walked in with a, you know, a furnace 
shelter. Last time I walked in Wolf's Burger Shelter, they say, why don't you write it down? I said, because I might write it down wrong. This is the one. I want four of these right yep. here. Give me four of these. Yep. Come on. I, I don't trust myself. So, uh, anyway, that was kind of comical. We had that, uh, hey, thanks for giving me the, uh, advice on the Doc Ellis, uh, documentary. I think I'd seen part of that before. It's what, 2014 or something? 2014, yes. But, uh, no, no, you just uh, go to, uh, what is it? It was on, where was it? Netflix? Was it no, Netflix? Amazon, right? Amazon, Amazon. Yeah, it's not Netflix, You know what my takeaway from that is? You know, beyond the drug craze 70s when all the baseball players were snorting as much coke as they possibly could and taking greens, we all know that. Right. But uh, how much the game misses the great black athlete? I mean, we have, luckily, luckily, the Latin America, you know, they started producing more and more and more players, uh, the Dominican particularly. Luckily, we discovered the Dominican, but don't we miss the wonderful, the, 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 the best black athletes in America going to play baseball? I mean, the game really misses that. What is it? Eight percent. You're right. Eight percent right. or something. Man, alive. You just look at those guys. The Pirates, you know, they were, like, good, really good. They were but I mean, Al Oliver, Dave Cash, and all, you know, those guys would probably all be playing football or basketball today. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, beyond Mays and Aaron and, and the whole generation, it's, uh, it's really, uh, if you had the Dominicans, now maybe baseball wouldn't, baseball probably wouldn't have invested as much in Dominican player development if they still had the, the black athlete, you know, the great American black athlete wasn't playing basketball, football. But if you had those guys with the with the Latin Americans you had now, man, oh, alive. You're right. But you had some players, which you? Wow. You're exactly right. The, the game would be uh, the game would be fantastic. Uh, and and yeah, you know, we also, of course, we forget the uh, you know low power days of the seventies too. When <laughs> you think that Doc could stir it up a little bit, he would have been good on Twitter when he. <laughs> oh, oh, he would have been va- yes. He's my idol. What a disturber he was! Unbelievable. So I decided. I was telling you yesterday that one time I met him and had a nice talk with him, and had to be. He had to be in town for a drug thing, you know, to, to make it. And, and I must have went and saw him when he was making a speech, you know, at a AA convention or some dang thing like that. Mm-hmm. And I sat down and talked to him for a while. That's the time I got to talk to him. Uh, it had to be something like that. I'll have to try to find it in my archives. But I told you, Jonathan, I told you this yesterday that Doc, he said, you're a better sort of guy, aren't you? You know, whatever. I says, yeah. He says, Man, he said, I love those little houses they had on the lakes up here in the winter. I said, what, do you always fish? He said, no, but I come up here for about a week in the winter and just go out one of those fish houses and take cocaine for a week. Nobody bother you. <laughs> nobody, nobody bother you. He said, you just sit out there in these little houses. They have TVs and you, you just snort every drug you want. No drug take. raids in ice houses. No, nobody was. The cops weren't going to raid the ice house. Don't, don't throw your beer cans on the lake and you'll be fine. You know, you can do anything you want to with those. 
he didn't even know what they called him. He says, the little houses they got out on the lake. It was unbelievable. Your lakes, they freeze up here, and then you got these little houses. It was great. He was a character, man. Uh, isn't it funny the, uh, when you watch him, when you watch him pitch now to the, that, like the breaking pitches he threw, he was, he was like this unusual guy because he threw so damn many breaking pitches and sinkers and stuff. And, you know, back then, you know, he challenged everybody with fastballs. And he didn't do that. The, the head hunting, you forget about that. Yes. Oh, the one thing, the Reds. one thing I could not remember was them trying to give him a 10 game suspension because he came out for batting practice with his hair curlers. Just yeah. to agitate him. Just to agitate him. It was a, that was baseball in the 70s, man. It was a big scandal. They had hair curlers and BP. Jeez. Unbelievable. But the drug stories are incredible from back then. Oh, they are. Oh, they are. The, the amount of drugs. They, well, you know, was it, what was the, uh, Oh, Enos Cabell. Was that the, who's a really, who's a bright guy, right? That you weren't you impressed with him? But Enos, uh, Enos had his share drug problems too, apparently. But yeah, when, when Doc went and played for, for the, the Yankees and basically, basically in the documentary talks about how the Yankees were all, you know, doing cocaine back then and stuff. And yeah, yeah. And yeah. he was saying that when he came there in spring training, he wanted to impress them, but he was kind of a serious guy, and he wanted to check them out. And then he, and he said, so he said, I don't do that stuff. They kept saying, I want him to go do cocaine and party. And he said, no, I don't do that stuff. And they said, so when did you find out? When did you let him know that you were, uh, that you did do that stuff? And he said, opening day after the game, they had a big party, apparently. <laughs> Tried to snort all the coke and uh, the Bronx or something. Unbelievable. It was, the Greedies are just un- incredible all the way they were all eating. What are they, they're saying, they're, I mean, everybody on that documentary saying 85, 90% of the guys took them because if they didn't, they were getting behind the curve, right? And that kept up until when, do you think, into the 90s? Well, uh, I don't want to pinpoint Dave Holland when he came to the Twins. Yep. But uh, there were. It appeared that uh, some of the fellas. I wouldn't say they were introduced, but they were. They were. Uh, he he kind of struck me. That that whole Philly team, you know, was famous for <laughs> for uh, being a bunch of Dykstra and all those guys uh, were famous for their, their amphetamines. And uh, I don't know. I remember being in uh, in, in the NFL too. In the when the Vikings lost a playoff game to the Eagles team that went to the Super Bowl with Vermeil, what was that eighty? Uh, I think it was eighty. I think it was yeah. eighty. Eighty-one. And yeah. I remember. I mean, I was talking to. I was doing their locker room story, and uh, the Eagles, and there were like two or three guys there, just incoherent. I mean, they were just. They were full of something. I don't know. It was greedies, or, but that was just you know, so. I don't know. But they were like incoherent. You were talking to them, and you said, "You know, that team became famous for a number of chemicals they were taking." But God Almighty, it was, I was saying, "Man, alive! This stuff's still around now." Right? Yeah, it, it lasted. I would think twenty years, probably. And then, then we invented, then we found discovered steroids, and that gave you a better aim. So, so when did it, ba- gr- when, hey Patrick, when when did baseball players when when were they as individuals at the height of being jerks? Seventies. 
Like, these guys are corporate now. Jerks? They're not jerks. Yeah. As yeah. people, they're well, not jerks. They're well, more corporate. Well, I would say, they. I mean, I, I wouldn't say jerks. I would say, uh, you know, we were all white, for one thing. Sure. Everybody covering. There were no black sports writers, right? There was mm-hmm. no, you know, we were all a bunch of white guys. And they had, you know, management was all white guys. And we were representatives of management, in their opinion, most of us, you know. And uh, and if you go back and look at some of the stuff he wrote, probably back then, you'd, you'd see why. But I would say it was more, they weren't necessarily jerks, they were suspicious. You know, they weren't any more jerks than the other guys, but they were, you know, you get into the, you get into, you, you, you'd have a guy like Doc who would, uh, you know, I never dealt with him, but I'm sure that you, you were, he was not. He was going to be defiant and, and put you down a little bit when he asked him questions. Now there's a few guys that were just absolute jerks. Alex Johnson was unbelievable, and uh, and uh, you know there was you know Albert Bell later on. Yeah. You know, but that was the same thing with white guys too. It wasn't jerks, but it, to that to be, I, they weren't they, they weren't defensive. They were. Uh, they were on the attack. Let's put it that way. Hmm. If you uh, if you ask a dumb question, they're playing. I was one of the worst moments I ever. I was covering a Twins Rangers game, and I had time to get to clubhouse. And Fergie Jenkins, I uh, had like you know six foot five black guy. Fergie had had shut out the Twins, right? And with Fergie, it was like a two hour game, so I had time to get down to clubhouse in Texas on a Saturday night. And I walked in, and there's this six foot five black guy, and and they said, "Hey Fergie, you got a second? You know, this is when you went to the locker room, and it was Jim Bibby. Oh, no. <laughs> around Jim Bibby, and he called me every day. I'm so sick of you bleeping bleepers calling me Fergie. You, <laughs> I said, yeah, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean that was. Maybe it was aggressiveness more than okay. you know, being. I mean, sometimes I mean, like Lyman Posak, greatest guy in the history of man. Larry Heisel, greatest guy that ever lived. Uh, you know, just just all of you know. But it was, uh, but it, it, the bigger markets, they uh, were more uh, you know more aggressive. It seems. I mean, the Yankees of the seventies were, <laughs> and the Red Sox, they were terrible too. So. And the Red Sox were just the, that was just the culture of the whole team. They were just a, they were just a bunch of jackasses. They always said that Ted Williams taught Yaz how to be a jackass, and then Yaz taught, taught Lynn and Rice how to be jackasses, and, uh, it and it, it kind of carried out. It got passed down by generations. Yeah. I think part of the problem though in Boston was always that clubhouse too. You know, you got a big media group yep. trying to cover a team in a little tiny. In a little tiny clubhouse, and everybody was on edge in that place because you were bumping into, you know, a fat ass like me goes in there and steps on somebody's foot or something, you know, punch you. So, anyway, anyway, I, it, it's really worth watching, and it's a great picture of baseball in the 70s. It really is. Which is probably the last, that, that, and that's also when, you know, later in that decade is when the players, uh, the black players started move into the other sports more and more, I think, don't you? Absolutely, yeah. But you're, yeah, you're right. Just, Those Pirates teams had some great, great lineups and great players. Oh, my God. You know, the, uh, they, they were telling the story about uh, 
when they started nine black guys, although yep. three of them were. But Clemente said he had a Jackie Hernandez. I didn't realize Jackie Hernandez uh, was the shortstop when they did that. He didn't play regularly. He was, uh, but the first time that they put nine nine guys of color on the field, I can guarantee you Danny Murtaugh wasn't doing that because he was a civil rights activist. Wasn't he the guy that was so upset about the hair curlers? <laughs> yes. Well, and, and he yeah. must have been in the 70s by that time, right? Yeah, he was uh, late yeah, well, well, and well, and, he looked like it. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it was a it was a real culture shock for uh, uh, because here's the other thing is, as Tom Reich pointed out, the agent that you know the players were used to being subservient to because they you know they had no power, they had no they couldn't become free agents or anything. And to have guys like Doc and other black guys come up and say this is BS uh, was a, was a shock to the system of the, of the white management. I'll tell you that. Oh yeah, I'm sure they didn't like that. So what? Yeah. What was the the one thing too? Just from that era that I find incredible was, you know, there there was nothing uglier probably in, in all of sports than the multi-purpose stadium. When they're showing those oh, games from free, God, they're awful. They're awful. <laughs> they are the ugliest. Yeah. Whoever thought oh. we can shoehorn everyone in this one stadium? Oh, they're yeah. terrible. And let's let's get the people paying the most for tickets farthest away from the field we can get. That's yeah. brutal. It was how baseball owners went along with that. I have no idea. But they were terrible for football too. Yeah, because I mean, they throw this field. Nobody was close. Nobody was close to the action. They're just god-awful. What was the first one? Oakland Coliseum was one of the early ones. Yeah. That was, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah but in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and St. Louis and all of those, what was the first one? And Cincinnati did it, too. God, Cincinnati, they're just oh, yeah, they all did. They all did. Yeah, I mean, and and they replaced great ballparks, too. Like yes. St. Louis, I never, I never saw Sportsman's Park, but they said it was fantastic. And, uh, Crosley Field. You know, Comiskey, the, was, uh, yeah, Crosley Field had to be fun because he had to, he had to run up the hill mm-hmm. in one field and, uh, and, uh, you know, Pittsburgh, Forbes Field, Pittsburgh people tell you that was fantastic. And my favorite park ever remains Comiskey. I, the old Comiskey. I, I, I love the old Comiskey, man. You were, you were thrust out on top of the, the uh, Tiger Stadium, too. At both of those, you were, the fans were kind of thrust out onto the field, and uh, they were just, you know, architecturally wonderful. And, uh, and you know, they held a lot of people, but they you felt like you were on top of the action. And, yeah, they replaced them all with these these terrible circle things. Ooh, man. You know, the Metrodome, for all the abuse it got, yep. you were a little closer at home plate there than you were in some of these others. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's yeah. very true. I mean, it was bad. It was bad, but it wasn't as bad as some of these places. And what's phenomenal about it, Judd, is now this is changing this year. But until this year, Oakland, which might be the original, still had two teams. Yeah. The only the only stadium in America to have two teams, the Oakland Coliseum, which has had twenty five name changes. I don't know what it was now, but. Uh, with the with the Ram with the Raiders leaving, but it's amazing that that place, which is that dump, was uh, able to was a dump when it opened, 
and uh, was able to have this whole thing. I, I, what, I wonder who the original architect was that sold people on this idiocy. That's what I'm wondering, too. Like, who, who came along and said, well, shoehorn your football and baseball team in this enormous, for the most part, AstroTurf, which, by, which back then was concrete. Um, yes. Because o- Oakland di- did have the advantage originally of being open, correct? So it actually had a view. It wasn't as yeah, ugly yeah, as, like, Pittsburgh did. or Philadelphia. Yeah, they did. They built Mount Davis later when they got yes. out back. You could, you could see the foothills out there. But, uh, uh, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible. Here's the, uh, you know, here's the other thing though. These stadiums back then were all 100% publicly paid. They became city projects in the city, you know, or the municipal projects. And they ran these things. You know, we, we complain now about, not getting them enough money out of teams, but that generation of stadiums, they were all 100% paid for by the public. You know, okay, the yeah. teams weren't throwing, teams weren't throwing yeah. money in them. You know, and now I think when they redid Yankees, you know, even 74, 75, I bet you go back to where the Yankees, when they rebuilt Yankee Stadium, I bet that was all public money. Maybe the Yankees put something in there, but well, the teams weren't making huge amounts of money then either, but the teams were not contributing to the you know, these, then one reason you ended up with these municipal stadiums, these circle things, is I think they were easy to maintain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Easy, you know, no grass. You get two, te- you get two teams in there, and they're easy to maintain. So Kansas City was like this novel thing of, my God, why do they need two stadiums? <laughs> one for baseball and one for football. What an I Who needs that? You know, so. So did teams back then know. threaten to move? What, what was the, the, uh, mm-hmm. leverage to get public money back then? Yeah, that was uh, part of it, I guess. Uh, the Calvin was, uh, when's the first time we heard? When they, Tampa was going to get the Giants when? Sometimes in the, was it sometime in the 70s they were going to get the Giants, Judd? Um, uh, I, I remember. They were going to get the Giants yeah. uh, when they were going to build that place in St. Petersburg and then. No wait. Well, the I, 80s. We the first time the first time we were threatened with a team moving, with the Twins moving, was Seattle because Seattle had okay. a team for one year, one year, and then sued the American League because they left after one year okay. for breaking the lease. And to get rid of the lawsuit, Seattle was going to build this dome stadium, and and the Twins were thinking about moving there, and then that that didn't. Didn't happen, but that's the first time because I think it was there were the rumors were strong enough that they they lost a doubleheader to Oakland. They were they were messing around playing, having a decent year, but nobody was going to the games, and they lost a doubleheader to the Oakland. And I wrote my lead in the uh, the, the in the on the cover of the two games in the like a twenty-nine doubleheader in the, into the Pioneer Press and. Uh, I said it was a two-act play that might be known as death of a franchise, you know, with, you know, with death of a salesman. Yeah. And, you know, and it was just a three-graph lead, and then I went into first game, second game. But the headline comes out, A's, A's star in death of franchise. <laughs> Big headline. And Calvin, went, they, they, Calvin went crazy. And uh, they all went crazy. And Arnold Gatho was a sports editor. And he had a sit-down meeting with me. I don't want to be the sports editor that drives this team out of 
town and blah, blah, blah. And here was the dramatic action they took. The, the press room closes one hour after the game. They were going to stop serving us whiskey. Uh, after, you know, yeah. I was going to close an hour after the game so that fat-ass young punk and his buddies couldn't come down and drink after they were done writing, you know. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that was, a, that was the, they announced it. And it lasted about two days. <laughs> and then the Angels came to town, and they had three guys. Dick Miller, everybody called him Hoggy. John Stedman and Don, what was the little guy? They, they were like the three musketeers. They worked for the three papers, and they were always constantly with each other. Crazy SOBs. And they had the notice on the on this cement wall there when you walked in that they closed. And the, one of them took out a cigarette lighter and burned it. <laughs> <laughs> that was that. That was it. One of the guys, I can't remember, probably Hockey Miller, he was sort of the leader of the crew. And he, they lit it on fire and burned up the wall there. And then we started getting our whiskey back. We forgot about it. But, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, I think that was 74. It might have been 75. I can't remember. But uh, oh, man. I just remember that. I just remember that headline. You just write this little throwaway lead. Don't think much of it. Then you look at the paper the next day. Death of Frank. That's what headline writers do, man. (laughs) Headline writers. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway. Oh, that's great. But, uh, yeah, that was the first threat. That was the first time we were threatened with the boom. And then, uh, of course, Tampa was, you know, 84 was the when Harvey had his buyout and the whole thing. And didn't I see a tweet from you in the past couple of days? It might have been today about the 74 season and the attendance for that season. For the Twins? Six, uh, 669, something like that, wasn't it? 660. Yes, yeah, it's incredible. 8,000 8, a game. You have to work yeah, now to draw that few people. I looked at something. I was looking at something oh, a couple of months ago. I, read it. It was a, I was looking up a Friday night game in 74. And this is like the middle of the summer, and they're, they're over 500. You know, they're around 500. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it said, and it was not done sarcastically, surprisingly, it wasn't. It says, before a sizable Friday night crowd of 10,146 or something like that, like, it was shocking that they drew 10,000 wow. on a Friday night in the summer to play a pretty good team. So, oh, it was, yeah, when they quit on him, they were all mad. They were still mad about Billy getting fired, but, you know, the year after Billy, Fired, they won 98 games and went back to the playoffs. 71, they uh, started to go downhill when both Harvin and Tony got hurt. And uh, they weren't awful, you know, but people were just, you know, like, we'd been spoiled that first decade, you know. They were really good. And and people just stopped going to games, you know. And they had a hard time getting a TV contract there for a while. uh, You know, nobody TV put their games on one year. They were on over-the-air WCCO. Yeah, well, no cable. I mean, you know, that's yeah. what, four, four stations, yeah. four choices. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, the only one to negotiate would be the, the independent. Right. It's Channel 11, WTCN. But, uh, yeah, and uh, they were, you know, it was, it was, it was brutal. Well, what really killed them was, they went five and twenty-one or twenty-two in spring training, and that sounds silly to say that killed them. But back then, you 
people were very skeptical about that team. And then they go to spring training and go 5-21, and 21 and everything you, we were writing in spring training is how rotten they are. And Because, uh, you know, you're playing your team, and they stink. Right. And it looked, it looked like they were going to lose 100 games. Actually, Willis, he should have been the manager of the year. He went 82 and 80 with that team. Well, when you look at it, you know, they had some players, Heisel, Drew, uh, you know, they were they they were brutal. Blylevin was still pitching for him, and uh, Harmon and Tony were both on their That was Harmon's last year, and Tony was Tony had a pretty good year, but he was limping bad. You know, he was he, if he got the second base, he had to pinch run for him if he needed the run and stuff like that. But uh, it was uh, you know it was we, people just were done, and then then the soccer team came and they lost they lost all the reprobates. Right? Yeah, because they started you, drinking at the soccer games. You saw yeah, they, they used to go to Twins games and try to sneak a beer in. Now, now they can, now they can build it. You know, the Twins charge you for parking. You didn't have to, you could get in the parking lot for free and commit a, a <laughs> axe that depraved, depraved axe. That, uh, they didn't even think of Sodom and Gomorrah. Hell with that. That was nothing compared to the parking They had campers. <laughs> they had plenty of room to do their depraved acts oh, or whatever. God. Oh, God, yeah. Oh. Yeah, before the kids turned it into a, a weekly uh, thing, was the campers weekend was the best party in the parking lot. People had come and pretty, the youth discovered campers weekend, right? So originally it was like, Mom and Dad from Zambroda were going to come up and sit in their camper and park out there. And, you know, by the seventies, the raucous youth had, uh, you know, were renting RVs and going out in the parking lot and just getting hammered for three, two, three days. I told you the story of my buddy, who I won't mention his name, that uh, we'd go out there and have a couple of drinks and watch the uh, hijinks after the after like the Friday night game or Saturday game and. Yep. And uh this guy uh met a young lady and and those those apartments that Sid owned straight out in center field, yep. you know, away from the uh he's he ends up with the young lady and misses curfew by several hours and all of a sudden he's he's laying there on his couch and he's asleep and he hears the national anthem. <laughs> He wakes up, sits on the couch, and be all together by himself. And there's a like a four year old girl sitting there staring at him. <laughs> I don't know what happened to the girlfriend, but uh, but he comes walking across the parking lot, uh, you know, <laughs> to get to the game. He comes pulling in about the fourth inning. So oh. that's uh, that's one of my. Uh, yeah, the writers weren't any better behaved than the players. That's the best part about it. That's the best yeah, part about yeah. it. All right. Yeah, the writers. We were all crazy, too, just like the players. All right. Well, we got to wrap it up. We'll talk to you next week. Uh, well, we didn't get into the topics of the day too much. You know what? So That's there okay. Are no there are no topics yeah. of the day these days. Don't worry about all it. All right. See you, Royce. Bye. Right. Hey there. It's Phil Mackey for Federated Mutual Insurance Company. And Federated is here to give business owners out there peace of mind. You pour your life and energy into a business, and the last thing you want is for something to happen that puts you on the defense, and that's where Federated comes in. 
based in Owatonna, Minnesota, over a century of experience in standing behind business owners. If you're a business owner and you want some more peace of mind, go to federatedinsurance.com to find out more about your local federated marketing representative. Federated Insurance, it's their business to protect yours. Planning to buy a new boat this year? Glenn Perkins here from my friends at Nelson Marine. The Nelson Marine difference is about customer service and a knowledgeable team of sales and service pros. Two large showrooms filled with an impressive inventory of the best brands in the business. London Crestliner Fishing Boats, South Bay Pontoons powered by Yamaha, Suzuki, Mercury, and Evinrude. Nelson Marine has been creating happy customers for 75 years. Visit their showroom on Highway 61 in White Bear Lake online at nelsonmarine.biz. 